I invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians 4. 1 Thessalonians 4. These brothers have Bibles. Everybody will need a Bible to follow along. So as they make their way back, get their attention. If you need a Bible, they'll get one of those to you that's marked for you at 1 Thessalonians 4. That Bible is our gift to you. We want everybody to own a copy of God's Word. 1 Thessalonians 4. Throughout its history, the church has been besieged by prophecy mongers. These are people with an overemphasis on teachings regarding the end times. One early Christian heretical group was called the Montanists after their founder, Montanus. They claimed to receive direct messages from God and they prophesied that the Lord's return was at hand. In fact, they changed the name of their town to New Jerusalem in anticipation of the second coming. In the 1800s, there were numerous groups that, through a series of convoluted calculations, determined that the years 1843 and 1844 would mark the Lord's return or would have some other prophetic significance. Among these were the Seventh-day Adventists, Baha'is, and others. And today, believers are inundated with a host of voices proclaiming conspiracy theories as they see prophetic significance in every newspaper headline. They even set dates for the Lord's return and so on. So people like John Hagee on cable and in books got many Christians excited and even worried over the last few years about so-called blood moons due to lunar eclipses and Jewish holidays. Jack Van Impey has made a career of associating current events with biblical predictions even predicting the Lord's return in 1976 and a few times since. In 1988, Edward Wiesenot mailed his prophecy book to pastors across the country. It was called 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988. I remember that, and I remember thinking that I'd like to write a book entitled One Reason Why You Shouldn't Read 88 Reasons. Colon, subtitle, Jesus said, no man knows the day or the hour. And then when it didn't happen in 88, he went on to predict the Lord's return in 89 and 93 and 94. The most recent prediction is that the rapture will occur a week from Monday. Due to all the alignment of planets and stars and astrological signs that supposedly coincide with a passage in the book of Revelation. Now here's a hint for you. They don't, and it won't. Now, do I really know for sure the rapture won't occur a week from Monday? The answer is no. As we'll see, it could happen at any time. But if it did happen a week from Monday, what I can say is it has nothing to do with planets and stars aligning. And I personally have a theory that the Lord won't return on any of the predicted dates just so that none of the blind squirrels will find an acorn by accidentally being right. Although in the first part of your Bible it says those whose predictions fail should be stoned to death. And it does say that. These guys are fortunate we're not under that system of justice. They have more lives than a cat. And they cause all manner of confusion and distraction from the truth. This preoccupation with date setting, despite the Bible's warning against it, persists. And it has a number of negative effects. 
It turns believers from faith to sight. Instead of living a life pleasing to God because of what he has done for us and because of faith in the truth of the scriptures, date setting leads people to trust invisible signs. It turns us from hope to disappointment. The failures of the date setters caused some to become doubtful and disappointed. They were built up for a huge event and then they become dejected when it fails to come to pass. It causes God's word to be mocked and ridiculed. Unbelievers have a field day reminding believers of the failure of their, quote, prophecy. They mock and ridicule both the believers and their Bible. And it distracts believers from what we really should be doing. Instead of inventing elaborate schemes to predict the rapture, we should spend our time doing what the scriptures clearly say for us to do. Pray, study doctrine, seek lost souls, help the needy grow in Christ-likeness. All of these preoccupations with what's going to happen in the future and is it going to happen now and trying to determine when divert attention away from the real purpose for predictive prophecy, which is to stimulate God's people to watchfulness and expectant hope. And what we watch for and what we expect is the Lord's return as believers, not the judgment that he's warned about for those who do not receive and honor him. And so the Bible says this, we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. What I can say, based upon the authority of scriptures, the next event on God's prophetic calendar is what's called the rapture. I'll explain what that is in our time together. That's next, but we don't know when and not knowing when is on purpose. Today, as we continue our series in 1 Thessalonians, we'll see that the Bible does teach this and that if it's properly applied, it should be a great encouragement for us as his people. So let's pray and then we'll look at God's word together. Well, Father, thank you as each week for gathering us and in particular on this day with some hazards involved. We thank you that these brothers and sisters were able to be here. We thank you for granting wisdom to those who thought it best not to come. We miss them, but we know in your providence that you have those here who are here by your appointment. And so, Lord, we ask you to bless our time together, both of our hours, but in particular now, as we look at this passage and this issue related to your promise of the Lord's return. We ask you, Lord, to help us to know it clearly, know why you've given it to us and appropriate that for our lives. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. And we have an outline inserted for you in your program. It has three major points, the first of which is this. The blessed hope, about which we just read in Titus chapter 2. The blessed hope is only for believers. And I say it's only for believers because, I say next, it was given to the church. Verse 13 of chapter 4. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death. Now that word uninformed is sometimes translated ignorant. We do not want you to be ignorant, but it doesn't mean stupid or foolish. Rather, the Greek word agonosko means without knowledge. 
And so they were uninformed without knowledge. The Thessalonians are without knowledge on this particular subject because they had not been taught previously about it. What they were reading as they received the letter of 1 Thessalonians, what they are reading is new revelation from God that was not given in the first part of the Bible, the Old Testament. In fact, a few years after writing this to the Thessalonians, the Apostle Paul wrote on the same subject. And that is the fate of those who died before the Lord's return. We'll see that that was a concern of the Thessalonians. And Paul wrote about it to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians as well. And he said this, listen, I tell you a mystery. You see, I have the word mystery there highlighted. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead in Christ will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. Now that word mystery I have highlighted does not refer to a riddle, but rather something that was previously unknown that's now been revealed. So if one lived before the time of Christ, the only revelation they had was in the first part of your Bible that we call the Old Testament. And if you look at what it teaches regarding the coming of the Messiah, it appeared that the Messiah would come one time and he would establish his kingdom. So you have passages like this in the Old Testament, speaking of the Messiah that was to come. You have Isaiah 61, and I alluded to this in a message uh, a few weeks ago, where Isaiah the prophet, speaking of the coming Messiah, said of him, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. And then it goes on to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. Now, I want you to just notice, it's right in the middle of that slide. It's very small, but do you see the small two, the superscript there? That's verse 2. Starts with, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So, Isaiah 61, verse 1, and then verse 2 says that, verse 2, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. Now, just keep that in mind. Verse 2, proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. Because, fast forward hundreds of years to the coming of this Messiah that was predicted there, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the Bible tells us in Luke 4 that he went into synagogue and he read from this very place. Luke 4 tells us, he read, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, and so on, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. But do you see what's missing there? That last phrase, and the day of vengeance of our God. But Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, verse 2 had both of those things. The year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. And Jesus says, today... This prophecy is fulfilled in your hearing, but he left off that last phrase, the day of vengeance of our God. Now, he did that because it turns out his coming is not going to be just one time, but two. And he's going to accomplish the first part of that in his first coming. And the day of vengeance of our God is going to come in his second coming. And we're going to see that 
beginning next week in First Thessalonians chapter 5, which speaks of something called the day of the Lord and his judgment. So you've got a passage in the Old Testament. looks like it all happens all at once, but Jesus informs us it's going to occur in at least two stages, a first and what we refer to as the second coming. Now, the reason it's laid out that way, that in earlier times God gave particular revelation, particular information about what he was doing, and then he expands on that later, it's called progressive revelation. God progressively, over time, makes known the details of his plan as the Bible unfolds. Things in Scripture that are written later provide more information about things that were just hinted at in the first part of your Bible. So when the Messiah actually comes in Jesus, hundreds of years after Isaiah's prediction, he not only revealed that he'll come in two stages, but he also revealed that the second coming will have two phases. So there's going to be a first and a second coming, but that second coming is going to have two phases to it. And for the very first time in all the Bible, Jesus alluded to the first of these two phases of his second coming in John chapter 14. When he said, I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me. This is the first time in all the Bible that we're told that God's going to take us to be with him. In the first part of your Bible, it was all God coming to us. But now we learned when he came the first time that there's going to be a second coming. He ascended back to the father. And indeed, he's going to return. But that return is going to have two phases, one of which is him bringing us to himself to be with him. So in 1 Thessalonians 4, the Thessalonians were uninformed because Paul was giving them new information, continuing progress of revelation about the first phase of the second coming. And specifically about what verse 13 says, those who sleep in death. What's the fate of those who have already died in Christ? The Thessalonians wondered. Sleep was a common euphemism in the New Testament for, in New Testament times, for death. By the way, death is an expression for sleep, as an expression for sleep, is really not too far off. Have you ever tried to wake up a teenager? It's like trying to raise the dead. So this sleeping in death is kind of like our euphemism, someone passed away. And the place where they put those who sleep was called a koimateria. The Greek word koimateria, which meant sleeping rooms. We get our word cemetery from it. And Christians imbued the term with new significance because for them, the body would only be in the sleeping room temporarily until the future resurrection. And we see that the comfort and new information about the future resurrection of those believers who died is only for believers Because it was not known even to earlier followers of God. It was given to the church in the church age. And, I say in your outline, it requires faith. It requires faith. So it's only for believers in that it requires faith. Verse 14 says, we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe. 
that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. The word believe, as I pointed out to you many, many times, is the same word in your New Testament in Greek as the word for faith. That's why I say it requires faith. It requires belief. And we believe these things. Belief means to have faith. And unbelievers are, by definition, faithless. That's why we call them unbelievers. That is, they do not believe what verse 14 says, that Jesus died for our sins and that he rose again. So I say to you, friend, if you are here and you do not believe, and you do not believe, you do not truly believe, if that belief has not made a change in your life. So if you've not been changed by the Lord then it's evidence that you do not believe. And if you do not believe, these promises are not for you. The warnings of the Bible are for you. Warnings of the coming judgment. But you need not leave here today without being a believer and committing your life to the Lord Jesus Christ so that the things we see today indeed will apply to you as well. The result is that for unbelievers, those who do not believe, those who do not believe Jesus died and rose again, They have no hope. The end of verse 13 says, So we do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. Believers, those who have faith in Christ and who Christ is and what he has done, have a radically different perspective on life and death. Pagan views of death are in stark contrast to that of Christians. For believers, death is only a transition to a better existence. For unbelievers, in the best case, it's the end. And in fact, according to the Bible, it means eternal punishment in hell. And so far from the Christian, who can say with John Wesley, our people die well? The unbeliever has no hope. We're elsewhere told to remember that you were separate from Christ without hope and without God in the world. That's the status of every person before they come to the Lord Jesus Christ. It was true of all of us who have now come to Christ. This reminds us, Christian friend, of the urgency of the evangelistic task. Because those who don't know Jesus are in that condition. And they have no hope. So the emphasis that our church has this year, and about which I'll be speaking at that third servant seminar two weeks from today. Again, I plug that. It's important, that emphasis on outreach and evangelism through our church. And I ask you, Christian, do you remember what it was like when you were lost? Unbelievers have no hope, but believers do based on God's past actions. Verse 14 says, we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will. Now notice, we believe that he's done these things in the past... Jesus died and he rose again, so because he's done these things in the past, we believe that he will, and we'll see what he will do in the future. So because of what God has done in the past, we have a guarantee and confidence, the blessed hope of the future. You see this throughout the Bible. Romans 8.30, those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. You've got these four things, predestined, called, justified, and glorified. And they're all written in the past tense. 
But it's only the first three that have already actually occurred in time. The fourth, glorified, is yet to occur, but it too is written in the past tense. And that's because in the mind of God, it's as good as done. And we have that very confidence because all of these things have happened to us in the past. And because of what has happened in the past, because he died, because he rose again, because in time God moved upon us and called us and justified us, we have this blessed hope of the future. So the hope about which we've been speaking is not the way we normally use it. I hope so. It's not a mere wish. Rather, it's a confident expectation of the future. And so believers have faith in God's past actions, which gives them faith in God's future actions. Because we believe and trust Christ and what he has done, verse 14 says, we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Now, how will this occur? We're given the sequence of events involved in living and dead believers being brought home to Christ. We're going to see that in the remainder of our time together. The blessed hope is only for believers, I say in your outline. And the blessed hope is for all believers. It's only for believers and it's for all believers. Because it will involve both the living and the dead. The dead and the living. Verse 15. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. Now notice that Paul includes himself as possibly part of those who will be alive when the Lord returns. He says, we. This is because the Lord's return could happen at any time. Paul didn't set dates. Paul didn't know that it would happen after his lifetime or in his lifetime. Paul didn't set dates and nor should we. So, friends, it could happen at any time that the first phase of the Lord's second coming could happen any time. So how would you change if you knew the Lord would return this week? How would it change your outlook? See, sometimes we say some people are so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. And I get that. And that's true of many people, many Christians. The truth is many of us are so this worldly minded that we're not doing the good in the time God has given us here that we otherwise would if we had our minds fixed upon the fact that this is not all there is and this is temporary. And we're looking forward to our home in the future and in the meantime, we are giving our all to do the Lord's bidding in His vineyard. What would change if you knew the Lord would return this week. And when he does come, this passage tells us it's going to have the trappings of majesty and honor befitting the king of kings. The return of the Lord will be attended by, verse 16 tells us, the call of the Lord. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command. That loud command signifies authority. It's a phrase that was used of a military officer shouting out orders. Or a coxswain ordering a team of oarsmen or a charioteer instructing horses. The voice of Christ is the voice of authority. It is his voice that said, let there be light and there was light. It was his voice in John 11 that stood outside the grave of his friend 
And the Bible says, with a loud voice said, Lazarus, come forth. And the Bible says that a time is coming in John 5 when all who are in their graves will hear his voice. Do we have that? All who are in the graves will hear his voice and come out. That voice of the Lord, that authoritative voice of the Lord will be accompanied by the voice, verse 16, of the archangel. The voice of the archangel is probably Gabriel who announced the Lord's birth. The voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God. Trumpets were used at festivals in the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament, to announce the entrance of royalty. So with all that... With this first phase of the second coming, you've got a lot of noise going on, don't you? You've got a loud command. You've got the trumpet call. You've got the voice of the archangel. So sometimes the rapture, this first phase of the second coming, is referred to as the secret rapture. But will it be secret? We've seen that the word mystery in 1 Corinthians 15, when speaking of the rapture, means something unknown before it was revealed. That those in the Old Testament knew nothing of it and those in the first century church knew little until Paul expounded it because Jesus had given it to him. So I suppose you could say it was secret before it was made known. And further, you could say it will be secret in that it will come unannounced. There's nothing that has to happen. It could happen at any time of the Lord's choosing, of course. But there will be this noise. So secret... Rapture does not mean silent rapture. Now, whether or not it's secret in that no one left behind will hear it, the Bible does not say. That is, the unbelievers who are left behind, will they hear the voice of the Lord? The trumpet call of God, will they hear this? The Bible doesn't tell us. And so to say that it's going to be secret and we're going to be snatched away and no one will know it goes further than what the Bible says. If they do hear what attends it, What would they say about it? So the rapture happens. People are gone. And unbelievers are left. And what will they say about that? Well, every event requires an interpretation of the event. And an interpretation of divine events requires revelation in order to be certain about what they are and what they mean. You have an example of this in John chapter 12. The Bible says, Jesus said, Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it and will glorify it again. But then John goes on to say this, the crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. You see, they don't know. Without revelation, you don't know what happened. Unbelievers who don't care about the Bible will make up. Some explanation for what happened. UFOs. Something. The transfer of God's people from earth to heaven with the Lord will involve both the dead and the living. And I say in your outline, the dead will be raised. The dead in Christ will rise first, verse 16 says. There was concern in the church at Thessalonica about the fate of those who had died before the Lord's return. Previously, in verse 15, it was said that the living will not precede those who've died. 
Now here are the specifics. Dead believers, those who were part of the body of Christ, the church, when they died, will be raised and their mortal bodies will take on immortality. The dead will be raised at this first phase of the second coming. And I say in your outline, the living will be changed. Verse 17, after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. The first part of verse 17 says the living believers will be taken. According to 1 Corinthians 15, we will all be changed. And therefore, this involves the glorification of our bodies or what's sometimes called a translation. Believers will be translated into their glorified existence. And this is all called the rapture of the church. It's called the rapture of the church because of what verse 17 says. Again, verse 17 says, We who are still alive and are left will be caught up. Now notice those two words, caught up. Those two words are a translation of one Greek word. And the Latin word, the Greek word is harpazo, which doesn't help us at all with why we call it rapture. But the Latin word for harpazo, or being caught up, is rapture. It's what we get rapture from. It's a Latin. It comes from a Latin term. So sometimes people will say to you, the rapture, the word rapture is not in the Bible. Well, it could be. <laughs> if, if you had a Latin Bible, it is. And so it's simply a translation of the same concept of being caught up. This is a weird concept of people just kind of disappearing. But it's happened in biblical times in the past. You've had, for lack of a better term, many raptures. M-I-N-I. Few, but many. Small raptures. One person here and there. You remember Enoch? The Bible says this. Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. And there were others like Elijah. Jesus ascended after his resurrection. Paul was, the Bible says, caught up into the third heaven in an event that he describes in 2 Corinthians 12. So this has happened in, in the past, and it's going to happen in this event, the first phase of the second coming that we rightly call the rapture. Now, I admit to you that I have not read any of the books in the Left Behind series. I've not watched the movie. I don't know if there are multiple movies. I know there were a zillion books. And part of the reason that I didn't read the books and I didn't watch the movie is because I'm weary and wary of prophecy mongers and people who read into the Bible things the Bible doesn't say. Now, I've read about the Left Behind series. And those of you that have devoured them, if what I say is incorrect, be sure to let me know. But one of the things the Left Behind series teaches is that the so-called secret rapture will be a silent rapture. Again, I've already shown you that the Bible doesn't tell us that. Then it also tells us that infants will be all snatched away. Children will all be gone. Because since children all go to heaven, all the children will go. Even unborn children will be taken from their mother's womb. And then the rapture snatched into heaven. Now, I believe there's a reason given in Scripture to believe that children who die before an opportunity to 
receive Christ, go to heaven. But we're not talking about, in the rapture, the ultimate destiny of these children. Those children could still go to to heaven uh, if they trust Christ later. There's nothing in the Bible that tells us that these infants will be gone. It's, frankly, false reasoning to assume that because infants, when they die, go to heaven, that therefore infants who are alive when the rapture happens will immediately go to heaven. And it assumes that there are going to be millions, perhaps even billions of people going. I don't know how many people are going to go. But I do worry that the church makes a false assumption that there are way more people who know Jesus than actually know Jesus. We look at this like it's going to be this cataclysmic event because there are going to be millions and millions of people all over the place who suddenly are gone. I hope so. I hope there are that many people who have a relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. I, for one, am skeptical that there are actually that many people. And so, what's this explanation going to be? I said, you know, UFOs possibly. Don't scoff at people actually using that. There's so much interest in extraterrestrials and all of that now. Because we can't believe in God for the explanation. So we've got to find something else. Right? I just spoke recently with an otherwise very intelligent person who believes, sincerely believes, that Earth is flat and that we faked the moon landing. So do not be surprised at what people will resort to to explain phenomena. It will be accompanied by noise, as we've seen, and this catching away itself, the Bible teaches, will happen quickly. Again, 1 Corinthians 15. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash. And flash is the word, the Greek word that's translated flash is the word from which we get our word atom, A-T-O-M. Something small enough that you can't cut it anymore. You can't cut it any further. So it will happen in a split second. In fact, of Enoch's mini-rapture, the Bible just says that after that, it says Enoch walked faithfully with God and then he was no more because God took him away. In a split second. Now, when will this happen? I don't know what can't set dates. Can happen at any time. Here's what I do know. That it will happen before something the Bible calls the tribulation. It's a seven-year defined period spoken of in several places in your Bible that will be a time of judgment upon all of the earth. The seven-year great tribulation. And I'm convinced that the Bible teaches that the catching away of God's church will happen prior to the rapture. And so I believe in something called a pre-tribulational rapture. That's in our church's doctrinal statement. Now, you don't have to understand that. You don't even have to believe that to be a member of our church. When I teach our newcomers orientation, I mention this very illustration of something that you might be confused about, perhaps you don't fully uh, agree with, at least as yet, uh, and you can still join our church. And we are still Christians, and when the rapture occurs and we in a split second are going up, I'm going to say, see? (laughs) 
I mean, it'll be a split second, but God will still give me time to gloat as we. (laughs) Revelation chapter three and speaking to the churches says this, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole earth. And when it says I will keep you from, it's literally I'm going to keep you out of. Not I'm going to keep you through the hour. I'm going to keep you out of. I'm going to keep you from it. In chapter 5 and verse 9 of 1 Thessalonians, chapter 5 and verse 9, we're told God has not appointed us to wrath. In chapter 1 and verse 10 of 1 Thessalonians, it says that he is the one God rescues us from the coming wrath. And so I believe that we will be removed prior to the wrath of the seven-year tribulation. So the rapture phase of Christ's second coming will involve the living and the dead. And, I say in your outline, it will result in a heavenly reunion. Verse 17, and so we will be with the Lord forever. You know, the community of faith on earth, the church, is a marvelous gift. It's a means of grace to be involved with with God's people and to encourage and to be encouraged. But we still have sin. Imagine a reunion in a community of faith where you're fully accepted, fully forgiven, fully wanted in the presence of one another and more important in the presence of God. Where there is no sin, the penalty has not only been paid, the power has not only been removed, but the presence of sin is gone as well. When I was growing up in church, there were some old songs, Pentecostal songs, that we used to sing. I'll Fly Away was one. But another one called When We All Get to Heaven. It was actually one of my favorites. When we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. When we all see Jesus, we'll sing and shout the victory. The blessed hope is only for believers. It's for all believers. Lastly, it has a present application. Verse 18, therefore, encourage one another with these words. We should, friends, consider the Lord's return, our blessed hope, as an encouragement in a fallen world. So when you see things like death today, let that be an occasion for you to remember, for you to look forward The Lord is going to return. The Lord is going to make all things right. So that when you see death, remember that death will be no more. When you experience sorrow in this life, as we all do, remember that all tears will be wiped from our eyes. When you see our God maligned as he is today, remember that there's coming a day when all will bow and every tongue will say, Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. When you see crooked politicians today, and I, that's redundant. <laughs> Remember that the king is coming. And the king will establish his government. When we suffer from physical and emotional pain, Remember that our God promises that all will be made whole. When you feel despondent about life, remember that there will one day, we will one day be in the presence of the one who is our life. 
So friends, this should be a comfort to us in a fallen world if we remember it. Here's your take-home truth. All believers have the guarantee of the blessed hope. All believers have the guarantee of the blessed hope. Now, we're going to pray in just a moment. And as I said earlier, these promises are indeed only for believers. When we bow and pray, I am urging you with a holy urgency that if you are not certain that you have been born again, that you have spiritual life that is evident in your life because you have placed your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus and you have bowed your life before him, then, friends, it's only the warning passages of the Bible that are yours of a fearful judgment that is to come. I don't say that to be gratuitous and scare you. I say that because it's truth from God's word. But you can be rescued from the coming wrath by finding harbor in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our only hope, and because we place our hope in him, we have the blessed hope. So we're going to bow and pray. And I urge you to realize that you are a sinner. To recognize that Christ died for your sin. Repent. Repent. Lord, I'm going to go your way. This is not just an insurance policy. If you just leave it those first two, that's your insurance policy. Yeah, I did that. I'm good to go. No, you repent. Lord, I'm no longer going to go my way. I'm going to go your way. I'm going to follow you. I'm giving you my life. So you realize and you recognize what you repent and you receive Jesus Christ into your life. Let's bow together. Father, we thank you again for gathering us. We thank you for the truth of your word about the blessed hope of our Lord's return. We thank you for the unfolding of scripture that tells us that he's not only going to have one return, but that one return is going to be coupled with his second coming. And that second coming is going to have these two phases, the catching away of your people and then your return with us to establish your kingdom. Oh, Lord, we thank you for what a marvelous promise that this is, and we believe it. We believe it because you've changed our hearts so that they're in tune with the truth of what you say. And because, Lord, you have shown yourself to be truthful and faithful, the things you have done in the past give us confidence for what you promise for the future. Lord, I ask you, in your mercy and your grace, God the Holy Spirit, move upon the hearts of some in this room who have come in here without knowing you, and therefore these promises did not apply. Oh Lord, save them, rescue them by applying the death and the life of the Lord Jesus to them, giving them your Holy Spirit so they now want to follow you and no longer go their own way. Lord, we thank you for these truths because they're all from you and dependent on you. And so we glorify you for them. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.